I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, page 468, 468 in the Pew Bible. Continuing our series on these kings of Judah, we come to chapter 17. Jehoshaphat, his son, that would be Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shereomoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. And with these Levites, the priests, Elishama, and Jehoram. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by fathers' houses. Of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna, the commander, with 300,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him, Jehohanan, the commander, with 280,000. And next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord, with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad, with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king, besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. That's as far as our text will go. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 63, in the stanzas 1 through 4.
Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, how do God's people live and thrive serving the Lord in a country that they themselves do not govern? Being ruled by a people that do not know God, don't recognize the law of the Lord, and frankly don't care about His religion. Is it possible for believers in those circumstances to succeed, to do well, when the powers that be are overwhelmingly secular and the authorities have no respect for the creator of heaven and earth? Well, those are big questions, and those were big questions facing the first readers of Chronicles. And more and more, these are the same big questions facing us today in Canada. You recall that the original Jewish readers of Chronicles were those who had returned from exile to live in their own land, but they were being ruled by a foreign empire, first the Persians, later the Greeks, neither of whom gave thought to Israel's God. They didn't care. Canadian Christians live, we live in our own land, but we are mostly ruled by secular officials who never mention the name of Jesus Christ in public, much less honor Jesus as Lord and King and ruler of our country. Many laws being made today in our land are ungodly, they seem even to be, at times, deliberately anti-Christian. Christians in the West are marginalized more and more. The deck of power and influence seems to be stacked against believers. Is it possible to live and to thrive in a country that has no use for you or your God? Well, it is when we learn to look above the political powers and the human influencers, look to our God who controls all these people and who controls all things and all the events of the world, that's what King Jehoshaphat did. As the world becomes more hostile to God's people, the most important thing we can do is to delight our hearts in the ways of the Lord. And so I bring you this word of God, delight your heart in the ways of the Lord. We'll see two things. We are to love to walk in the ways of the Lord, and we are to love to teach the ways of the Lord. Chapter 17 opens with the notice that Jehoshaphat has become king in place of his father Asa. And then it adds in verse 1, he strengthened himself against Israel. You'll recall that King Asa's reign, that of his father, did not end on a high note. King Asa, in his last years, he became proud. He stopped serving the Lord in the ways that he had earlier done. And he did things his own way. He even put one of God's prophets in prison and he killed some of the people who protested. So, 
Imagine that you are Jehoshaphat growing up in the palace under your father, King Asa. In those last six to eight years, there would have been a very cold feeling in the palace and in the city of Jerusalem for someone like Jehoshaphat who was a believer and many other others with him. They would have been on pins and needles from that internal threat. If you spoke up for the way of the Lord in the hearing of King Asa, you could end up like that prophet in prison or worse. So there was a chill in Jerusalem. And then there was this external threat of the northern kingdom of Israel. We read in 1 Kings 16 how the army general Omri had taken over the throne in the north about 15 years before Jehoshaphat came to the throne. And now Ahab, just a little bit before Jehoshaphat comes to the throne, Ahab becomes king in the north, so Ahab and Jehoshaphat are contemporaries. We know Ahab a little bit, right? Not a good guy. Omri, his father, was a very powerful king, both militarily and financially. He was successful in commercial enterprise, and Ahab, his son, was showing the same kind of aptitude. And earlier in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we learn that Asa, in his latter years, faced constant military attack and threat. So Judah, in the latter years of Asa's reign, in the opening years of Jehoshaphat's reign, they would have been living under threat. They would have been living under a knife's edge or on the knife's edge from external powers. So Jehoshaphat comes to the throne in these delicate, difficult circumstances. What does he do? Well, we read in verse 1 and 2 that like his fathers before him, he starts to fortify the cities in Judah. He has to be concerned against that military threat from the north, and he, so he, he moves to protect the border. And Jehoshaphat was successful. Despite the threats from inside and outside, we learn in verse 5 that the kingdom was established in his hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat tribute. And he had great riches and great honor. So Jehoshaphat was able in a few years to gain the respect and devotion of his own people. And more than that, we learn from the, the last, latter part of chapter 17 that he was able to gain the respect of the surrounding nations as well. For verse 10 tells us that none of the surrounding nations even dared to make war against him. That was different from what was happening in King Asa's reign the last years. And on top of the fact that they didn't dare to make war against him, we read that long-standing enemies like the Philistines, maybe that caught your eye in verse 11, the Philistines and even the Arabians to the south, they brought to Jehoshaphat presents. They brought to him tribute of money and animals. Jehoshaphat hadn't fought a battle yet. They're bringing him presents. So he grows in, in riches. He grows in military power. The, the total number of soldiers that he has by the end of the chapter is over a million men ready to take up arms. How is this happening? How could King Jehoshaphat in just a few short years gain such respect from the surrounding nations and have even over a million soldiers at his disposal in Judah? 
How could Jehoshaphat avoid the mistakes of his father Asa? How could he be a king who does good for his people? What is the secret to Jehoshaphat's success, we want to ask? Well, the secret is found in verse 3. The opening part, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. That's the secret. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. If the Lord is with you, brothers and sisters, no threat is too large for the Lord to put down. No trouble is too difficult for Him to overcome. No blessing is too great for Him to bestow upon you, if that be His will. It's far better than, than having the wind at your back or some kind of heritage of fantastic DNA or having the so-called golden touch in your hand. Those things are just whimsical anyway. But if the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is with you, He will make your footsteps firm. He will bless you on your way through good days and bad. The key question then is this. Is the Lord with you, with me? Is this God of heaven and earth in your life, is He walking with you day by day? Well, that leads to another question. How would we know that? How can we figure out if the Lord is with us? And the answer to that is also simple. The Lord is with you if you are with Him. That's His promise. Made to all of us in His covenant of love. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be with you if you will be with me. The prophet said it in chapter 15 of Second Chronicles. What does that mean exactly, to be with the Lord? Well, verse 3 spells it out. Three, uh, verse 3 of our text. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals. He sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. And that means the northern kingdom. So Jehoshaphat did not copy the ways of his father Asa in the latter years. He copied Asa's earlier devotion, who himself was imitating father David's Devotion, David being the most faithful, not a perfect, but the most faithful of Israelite kings. Nor did Jehoshaphat do what his neighbor to the north was doing, run after the Baals. This is the very first mention of the god Baal in the book of Chronicles. Why would the Baals come up now? Because of Ahab and Jezebel. Right? They were ruling in the north. They were big-time Baal worshippers. And because the north was so financially successful and militarily strong, it looked like the smart play on a human level that looked like the smart play to go after the Baals because it was working for Ahab. Or maybe go after the golden calves like Ahab 
also had up in the north, right? Those golden calves through which the Lord was worshipped in Dan and Bethel. But Jehoshaphat, we read in verse 3, Jehoshaphat rejects all of that out of hand. That is bunk. I will not go after any false god. I will not worship the Lord according to man-made methods, making a golden calf. I'm not going to worship the, the Lord my God to suit my tastes. I'm going to seek the Lord my God the way He wants to be sought. Jehoshaphat is determined to obey the Lord's commandments in a way that pleases the Lord. That's how Jehoshaphat was with the Lord. That's the only way for a person to be with the Lord. Now let me ask you, you personally now, are you with the Lord? Is that how you and I are living our lives? It's the only way. God only will accept those whose hearts are inclined to Him, whose hearts delight in Him and in His ways. Then He comes alongside and He is with them for their good. Consider the contrast. The Lord was not with Ahab and Jezebel in the north, was He? But He was with Jehoshaphat. Is He with you. Jehoshaphat is a true son of David, and he truly foreshadows the coming great son of David, Jesus Christ. You remember that each king in the line of David is a type of Christ. It's, they're like little models that show us something of the coming Christ. Sometimes they're really good models, sometimes they're bad models. But Jehoshaphat is one of the better ones, preparing the people for that coming Messiah. And the heart of Jehoshaphat in our text, it shows us the heart of King Jesus. Verse 6, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. That's Jehoshaphat. Now, that's an unusual expression. That verb translated as courageous, it, it literally means to make high. It's often used uh, in a negative way to describe someone who is puffed up with pride and arrogance. You could say it describes a, often a person who is high on himself. But Jehoshaphat is quite different he is high on the ways of the Lord. In other words, his heart is eager for, his heart is inclined toward, his heart delights in loving God and keeping his commandments. That's what thrills him to dedicate himself to obeying the will of his heavenly Father. And isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did? When Jesus came to earth, he said, to his enemies, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me. And later, speaking to his disciples, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. 
Jesus' greatest joy was to abide in his Father's love, and he did that by keeping his Father's commandments. That's what thrilled him. That's what made Jesus tick. Does it make us tick? Jesus kept all the same commandments that Jehoshaphat was asked to keep, that you and I are asked to keep those Ten Commandments. And then Jesus kept one more commandment that we're not asked to keep. The command of His Father to lay down His life as a substitute for you and me. That was part of Jesus' will. That is, or part of the Father's will for Jesus. And even though it was the hardest thing any human could ever do, even though it was the most painful and heart-wrenching task to absorb His Father's wrath in your place and mine, yet the Lord Jesus did that because His heart delighted in the ways of His Father. Because His heart still delights to do His Father's will. Shall you and I then not follow suit? And delight our own hearts in our heavenly Father and in the King that He sent to save us from our sins. We need to have a delight in our God. You see, being a Christian cannot just be a matter of duty. You can't just show up to church Sunday and do a couple of requisite things. You can't just check a few boxes through the week and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. No. The duty has to be born out of delight in the Lord. Out of a joy. Out of a love for the God who first loved us. Jehoshaphat, like David before him, knew the love of God for him and his people. He knew salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the sacrifice of God's lamb alone. He saw that gospel every time he went into the temple and the burnt offering was made. And out of that love for God, he delighted to walk in the ways of the Lord. And Don't we see the same gospel, the same thing every time we come to church? Every time we open our Bibles and read about the Savior, don't we see how much love God has for you and me to save us through the death of His only begotten Son? We need to let that catch our hearts on fire. That this God saves us by such an outpouring of grace and then let your hearts delight in walking in His commandments then you will not be afraid of internal threats or external threats, but you will gladly lean upon your covenant God who is with you. You will do that joyfully, and you will even teach others to do the same. For King Jehoshaphat goes on to do something that no king before him had yet done. We find that in verses 7 through 9. It says there, in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. Military threat in the north, 
He sends out teachers. A very specific set of teachers. Five officials from the palace are joined by nine Levites and then two priests for a total of 16 instructors. And what is it that they are set to teach? Verse 9. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities and taught among the people. The king gives them a very clear command. I'm sending you out on a teaching tour. I want you to go to every city. Don't miss one. I want you to go to every city among my people, and I want you to teach them the law of the Lord their God. In other words, the very thing that had captured Jehoshaphat's heart, he now desires that the, does the hearts of his people be captured by the same. He wants them to delight in the ways of the Lord. For that is what the law of the Lord holds out to us, the ways of God. You know, when we hear the word law, we think commandment. We have to learn to think broader than that, particularly when we're talking about the law of the Lord. That word for law is the word Torah. And that certainly includes commandments, but it extends beyond that to include the promises of God as well. It also includes the general instruction that we find in the stories found in the Pentateuch, the stories of the people's needs and God's provisions. Also the stories of the people's rebellion, God's discipline, and God's gracious rescue time after time. All of those things are found in those five books of Moses. All of those things are Torah. This specific reference to the book of the law of the Lord may well be what we now call the book of Deuteronomy, because in Deuteronomy, you have all of that summarized. You've got the laws and the promises. You've got the stories and God's provision for His people all rolled up into one book of Deuteronomy. The king, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king had to have a copy of that scroll. In fact, he had to copy it out by his own hand, keep it on his person, and meditate it on it day and night. David did that. Jehoshaphat evidently was doing that. And now he wants the people to follow suit. Just like we can sing in Psalm 1 and, and Psalm 119 how meditating on the law of the Lord day and night is such a blessing and such a privilege, so Jehoshaphat in that spirit sends out the teachers. Embrace it, my people. Delight in God's word, in God's promises, in God's salvation. That's the only way to have your God with you. Delight in Him. Those who themselves delight in God's word, in God Himself, will be eager to teach others to do the same. Makes sense, doesn't it? Isn't that, in fact, what the Lord Jesus himself urges us to do? Consider the parallel between Jehoshaphat and Jesus. King Jehoshaphat sent teachers out to a single nation, Judah. 
King Jesus sends out teachers to all the nations of the world. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's Jehoshaphat now writ large over the whole world. The impulse to spread the gospel has only grown stronger and more urgent in the new covenant setting. And that makes so much sense, doesn't it? I mean, we recognize that there is only one God, right? We know Him to be good, holy, loving, and kind. We know this God as the only one who saves us from our sins in His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. There's no other way out of our mess. And we know that this God invites the whole world to come and believe and be saved. Whoever believes, whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. How then can we keep silent about it? Delighting in God's ways means also that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's one of God's ways. So how can we then not speak to our neighbor about the only God that there is and about the only way for them to be saved from eternal death? Would it be loving for us? Would it be kind of us just to let our neighbors go on their way and keep them in the dark about the Lord and His salvation? We've got to talk. We've got to share. We've got to teach. Maybe you say, okay, <clears throat> that's all well and good. People should know about the Savior, but I'm not much of a teacher, you know. I'm not good with words. I, I can't really explain things all that well. And certainly it's true that God does gift certain people with teaching abilities. And it's also true that He calls certain men to be teachers in the church and missionaries and preachers and so on. But there's also a whole range of teaching that goes on all the time and that just about everybody can take part in. Think, for example, of the task of parenting. Many of you are parents, parents who maybe never will step in front of a classroom, but you have students. Those students are your kids. And those kids are listening to you. They're watching you. God, your Father in heaven, calls you to instruct your children. Fathers, do your children see in you a man whose heart is filled with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God, his Father? Do they see in you a man whose heart delights in the ways of the Lord, who delights to walk in obedience to God's commandments? Do you speak about these things in sincerity with your kids? Or are you, by your example, teaching them the opposite? The way that you live life is a teaching model, isn't it? How about the mothers? Mothers, what would you say? Or what would your children say? What would your children say is the most important thing in your life? 
Do they see you busy here and busy there, doing this and that and the other thing? Or is it obvious to them that the most important thing in your life, that your heartbeat is for the Lord your God? That you do everything out of love for Him? Is that what they see? You see, we're teaching all the time. We teach by our words and we teach by our lifestyle, our example. And it goes far beyond parenting. Think of the Christians in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8. Persecution starts. They have to flee the city because of persecution. What do they do? They start speaking with people about Jesus Christ, about the only Savior that God gives. And the word spreads and people believe their zeal for God, it just bubbled up over and it spilled out also because they loved their neighbor. Shall we not do likewise? We confess too, right? In Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we confess that each of us, all of us, are anointed prophets who are tasked with the task, with the job of confessing the name of Christ to everyone. Can we make it a point to pray that this will increase in our lives, that we will be given the words to say and the, the, the courage to say it? Take some courage. I know that. It's not easy speaking to the neighbor, particularly when the neighbors maybe aren't all that interested. But let's pray for the neighbor. Let's pray for an opening. Let's pray for the courage to take the opening. And let's just talk about what's on our hearts that zeal for the Lord. We are instructing others by our behavior, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in forms of entertainment that we choose, whether it's our walks through the mall, how we do that, or our conversations here or there, wherever and whatever, we are teaching others something about us. What message are they getting? Let them get this message that you and I, we delight. We delight in walking in the ways of the Lord because we delight in the Lord and urge them to do the same. Did you notice the results of Jehoshaphat's teaching tour? It starts in verse 10. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Now, that word fear is not the usual word for fear, which we often understand to be reverence, but it's a different word which means dread or terror. These people were afraid. The surrounding nations felt the terror of the Lord in their hearts, and they did not dare come against Judah. What was the cause of this terror? Up until the end of Asa's reign, just a few years earlier, the surrounding nations were very bellicose toward Judah. They were, they were threatening, and they would make raids, and they were not at all afraid to attack. But all of a sudden, in just Jehoshaphat's third year, they stop all of that, and they're scared silly at the thought of going up against Judah. Why? 
Jehoshaphat hadn't fought any battles yet. We're not even yet told about the, the gathering army that seems to come subsequent to the terror. All that he did, all that we know from verses 1 through 9, all that Jehoshaphat did was this. He delighted in the ways of the Lord. That's what he was doing. And he taught the people to do the same. So as Judah more and more delights themselves in the way of the Lord, the enemies, the hearts of the enemies, they melt away like wax before the fire. Do you see how the Lord was with Jehoshaphat? Do you see how the Lord blessed him with peace and protection such as no human power can bring about? If we are with the Lord, then the Lord is with us, even in surprising ways. And God has one more surprise in store for Jehoshaphat. The chronicler tells us about this sizable army that he gathers in that time period. As king, he had the authority to conscript soldiers, right? And long before, and before too long, he has several hundred thousand soldiers under his command. And then we read something unusual, verse 16. After the, the list of a couple of these commanders, verse 16, and next to Jehohanan, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord with 200,000 mighty men of valor. We've got a volunteer. No conscription necessary for this fellow Amasiah. A volunteer warrior who was so skilled at his job that he could command 200,000 soldiers beneath him. 200,000 mighty men of valor. Isn't that something? How do you get a volunteer in a circumstance like that? That's the Lord at work, isn't it? This time on the other side of the equation. Just as he had put a cowering spirit in the hearts of God's enemies... So he puts a courageous, willing spirit in the hearts of God's people, and they come up and they're volunteering. That would also explain the incredible size of this army, the more than million soldiers. That's the biggest one to date in the history of the divided kingdom. All of a sudden, Jehoshaphat is supported by the largest army in Judah's history, and there's no enemies to worry about. humans and all their resources and power can look very daunting when they are arrayed against us believers. But our response should not be to fear, but to follow. Not to live in dread of those who are enemies to us, but to live in delight of the Lord and His ways. Oh, yes, we may well need to engage in the battle, and Jehoshaphat will fight a few battles himself later on. But the first response, the first response in that time of opposition is not to rise up in self-defense, but it is to bow our heads in humble worship and let the Lord our God rise up in our defense. For if we are with Him then He is with us. And if the Lord is with us, the battles, they're already 
one. Amen.